Oh, yeah, dig it. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Macho Movie Man podcast. It's another diary episode this time. We're going to be discussing the movies I watched in January 2023. It's the first diary of the new year. Apologies for the delay. I have been busy recently uh, working on getting new episodes up. And also we will be having the ma- the um, the Macho Awards, the yearly award show. That I do on my Instagram will also be happening on the podcast this year. I've been working very hard on getting the nominations decided upon. The announcements will be made within the coming days, in fact. Ooh. And also, the new next episode, our Alien Invaders episode, will be up very soon. So, there's a lot of things happening at the podcast, so... Keep up to date with all of it. Thank you very much. So we'll be discussing the movies I watched in January. I have the list right here. Starting off, we have Armor of God, which is a Hong Kong martial arts movie directed and starring uh, Jackie Chan. This was Jackie Chan's directorial debut, if I, if I'm right. And it's a, it's a DVD I bought during the Christmas season. And I was very excited to watch it. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It's, it's not a perfect movie by any means. It has some fantastic action sequences in it. The, uh, including a phenomenal motorbike chase. And one of the best uh, finales I've ever seen in an action movie. The last third is just absolutely magnificent. The only issue is some of the pacing is a bit weird. And the gaps between action is a bit too long at times. And I watched the English dub version. So... I will need to go back and watch the original Hong Kong version to see if some of my issues with how the characters were written or came across is down to the English dub doing said characters dirty or were they just kind of poorly written from the start because some of the characters can get quite annoying and there's an odd... And I don't think it fully gets the balance between action and and comedy romance... All that other stuff, I don't think it fully gets that balance right. But in terms of just an action movie, it is fantastic. And I would definitely say check it out because it's a lot of fun. Um, Then I watched The General, which is a silent movie from the mid-1920s. 1926, if I believe. Starring the legendary Buster Keaton. uh, Often cited as his favourite of his films. And off and probably his best, which I do agree with. This movie is phenomenal and holds up so well considering it is darn near a hundred years old. It's a silent movie and it is essentially a one man uh, show performance from Buster Keaton, which is so good. And he's so on point with everything he does on screen from his visual gags to the look to how he sets up his physical jokes, how he how he pulls it off. 
It all works so well. So well, in fact, that it's able to overcome the huge yikes factor about this movie, which is it's set during the American Civil War, and the good guys in this movie are the Confederacy. This movie uh, wants you to cheer for the Confederate South, and Buster Keaton is so good in this movie uh, that you almost actually do. That's how good he is in this movie. He makes you almost root for the South. Uh, we also have, I also watched White Noise, which debuted in early January on Netflix. I'm very hit and miss on Noah Baumbach, and this was a miss for me. I just, maybe I didn't get it. Maybe it was too intellectual for me. Maybe it was too intellectual trying to be silly for my taste. Who knows? I didn't really get it. I didn't vibe with whatever wavelength this movie was on. I appreciate what Adam Driver was doing, and I thought Don Cheadle in his supporting role was really good. He definitely should get more comedic roles because he was by far and away the best thing in this movie, but it it didn't click for me at all, really, and I don't think I'd watch it again, but I feel like some people out there will enjoy this, so I can't say don't watch it, but I I just it wasn't it wasn't my cup of tea. Then I watched This Place Rules, which is a very good political documentary about the current state of American politics um in terms of the build up to the 2020 election and then the aftermath of the 2020 election from Biden's victory being announced up until the storming of the Capitol. It's done by a journalist by the name of Andrew, I can't remember his last name, but also there's a lot of allegations come out about him since I watched this, so maybe it's, maybe it's better that I don't actually mention his name, but um, yes, uh, I think it's really good. I kind of describe it as what would happen if a Michael Moore documentary actually had um, an unbiased nature to it. Um, and some more integrity to it. It's a lot of man puts microphone up to MAGA Trump supporter and MAGA Trump supporter does something ridiculously stupid or says something wild. Um, but he doesn't just show the right wing folks. He shows some of the crazier people on the left as well. And, you know, he doesn't sugarcoat the fact that there's issues, there's a, there's a lot of issues on both sides. And he also manages to just kind of cleanly cut to the reality of it beneath all of the circus and the madness uh, in, a, in, in a poignant way. Like, I do not support this person as a human being, the guy behind the documentary, but I can't say that this is a bad documentary. It's quite good. It's one of the better documentaries I saw of the ones that came out last year. And I would, I'd say check it out. Um, then I rewatched 9 to 5. Uh, for my money, the best female comedy of all time. It is note perfect on every level. From the casting choices to the chemistry between its three leads... Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Dolly Parton. The performances are all 
100% perfect for what they need to bring and what they do bring. It's hilarious. It still works 40 plus years on. And it's one of those movies that has a definite message that you can feel and like, you know, you get it. But it also doesn't smash it over your head the way that more modern comedies probably would. So it's a movie that I think if you're making a comedy with a message in 2023, I feel like 9 to 5 is 100% uh, a movie that you should watch if you want to know how to do it without it feeling too obvious, but also getting your point across in an easy and like to the point way. Um, but also, again, modern most modern comedies won't have uh Dolly Parton and Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin just having perfect chemistry the writing is amazing it it, it just works on every level and if you haven't seen 9 to 5 do yourself a favor you will not regret it it is fantastic uh then I watched High Fidelity which is a rom-com from the year 2000 starring John Cusack and this is one of those rom-coms that actually works because its lead protagonist is an asshole, as opposed to one of those romantic comedies that paints its uh, protagonist as a good guy when all of his actions scream, actually, no, this guy is an asshole. It works on that level, and I think it's a very smart way to tell a rom-com story that allows, that, that touches on some of the less good mentalities that we have in terms of how we look at relationships this movie is about how people look at relationships the same way they do physical media and possessions like this is part of my collection this is something I've owned this is something that I've had this that I can kind of put into like lists or tiers or whatever and I think it's very smartly written it's really well acted and it's one of those movies that works only because its protagonist is an asshole. If this movie wasn't fully aware of his assholery, it would not work in the slightest, but it really does. And I think it is it is definitely one of the best romantic comedies of this side of the millennium. Uh, and I would check it out. And then I finally watched Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon, which I would argue is his best film ever ever this movie is a complete and utter masterpiece on every single level of storytelling filmmaking uh thema thematics uh it is it is note perfect in pretty much every level and the fact that he managed to do it in basically under 90 minutes like this movie comes in somewhere between 80 and 90 minutes long and the fact that you can make such a perfect movie that gets across every single thing that you're trying to get across from how he wants to speak about the duality, the nature of truth in its duality, uh, how low man's true nature can sink, uh, how far is too far. In terms of how far we can sink and if there's any hope for humanity at all. The fact that you can easily make those topics 
manageable and get them across so fluently and so to the point and still make it entertaining when it's essentially basically two one act plays with three with three actors melded into one another to make a movie where you have maybe six characters seven overall the fact you're able to manage to do that so well to such a to such a perfect degree in such little time is just a sign of how damn good Kurosawa was and Rashomon it's my favorite movie of his and I do think it's his best film just overall in general so it is one of the best movies ever made by one of the greatest filmmakers of all time absolutely go and watch it uh and i watched empire of light now this is definitely not perfect at all this is one of those movies that comes out around award season where the only reason it exists is to shamelessly go for awards and in the same way that netflix movies can often feel like someone took a bunch of popular audience tropes and genres and threw them into a big computer algorithm and it spits out the most generic action blockbustery movie that will clog up your the arteries of your Netflix account. Um this is that but the algorithm writes and creates stories that try to take as many of the all oh, the Acad the Oscars will love this uh booklet and it's so determined to tick every box that it forgets to be a proper story and to be a good movie. You know, you have oh you have the cinematographer who always gets Oscar nominated. You have Olivia Coleman who always gets Oscar nominated these days. You talk about racism. It's an ode to cinema. It has uh, scenes with Olivia Coleman going all the way up to 11 crazy acting. And it just, it, none of it works. None of it works. It's not a good movie. It is Oscar bait. You know, it is the port, it is the dictionary definition of Oscar bait. If you look up the term Oscar bait in the dictionary, you'll see the poster for Empire of Light smacking you dead in the face. Um, and yeah, it, it's a big disappointment coming from Sam Mendes. His last, his, his, his film coming off of 1917, which was great. This just felt like someone rang him up just after he got out of lockdown and was like, hey, we have a film here uh, that's a generic script, but we kind of think it could have Oscar potential. Do you want to come on and it'll get Oscar attention because your name was attached to it? And he's like, yeah, sure. I was working on kind of a thing during lockdown, but it's not a good thing because we were in fucking lockdown. And yeah, it just feels like no one is really trying here. Olivia Coleman has given better performances. Uh yeah, with Roger Deacon's cinematography, that even feels like it's on autopilot. This 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 is this will be forgotten very quickly and it's not a movie that I think I'll rewatch again very soon at all. So yeah, it it it's it's Oscar bait, you know, and shamelessly so. You know, then I watched a man from Otto, a man called Otto, 
Uh, and this was a movie. This was fine. It was okay. It was nothing to write home about at all. It's nice to see Tom Hanks, you know, doing a performance that doesn't make you think, did he go crazy over lockdown? Did is he just lost his mind and someone is filming it? You know, like he had a rough year last year. So I'm happy to see him back to a more, you know, normal level-headed performance. And it's nice to see him playing against type to an extent as this grump that kind of goes against his image of you know oh he's America's dad he's the nice he's the nice guy you know and it and I and I will always stand up for Tom Hanks in comedic roles because he has his career has just been become so defined by his dramatic work that we forget that he started out as a comedic actor and you know, and he w- and he is still a good comedic actor. You know, he is funny in this movie. This movie without him would be absolutely nothing at all. But he makes it at least decent. Again, it is nothing memorable whatsoever. You'll watch it when it's on TV sometime, or you'll watch it on an airplane. But again, it's not going to be something that lasts long in the memory. It's your standard, you know, you know, cut of life, weepy story again it's 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 fine it is the definition of fine and and then i watched till which is another pretty much oscar bait movie but this it it's a it's a better movie than empire of light at least it's the story of emmett till and his mother's fight for justice in the wake of his uh lynching in the deep south in the 1950s um and this movie is pretty much carried uh beyond uh, you know it's a well-directed movie it has some really good craftsmanship on display um uh shout out to the makeup team uh for how for the job they did on the corpse of Emmett Till because that that was a very important aspect of this movie and this story was it was paramount like if you fuck that up then like you know the movie is not fully going to recover from that no matter how good anyone's performance is and they nailed that element of the story they nailed how the corpse looked uh so shout out to that and i don't know if it got nominated for an oscar in that category but like it should have and then obviously you know, I cannot believe they snubbed Danielle Deadweiler for her performances made me till here. It is the heart and soul and lifeblood of this movie. It is phenomenal. If this movie only existed for this performance, then you know it proved it, it, it merited the existence of this movie. As I said, it's a good movie, but it also feels like a kind of a we've been been here, done that for these types of race-based um period dramas and i'm not saying the story shouldn't be told because it is an important story it's one of the defining stories of racism in that period in american history but it just feels like a movie that should have maybe come out 10 years ago in kind of the wake of say 12 years a slave but you know we are 10 years we're, we're now 10 years on from 12 years a slave and I just feel like these types of stories about uh, black uh, black people in America or wherever in the world, 
you know, it feels a bit, you know, we've been here, maybe time, maybe the period of time in this movie could have come out and been like a, a genuine heavy hitter in award seasons and in public consciousness and whatnot. That window has come and gone. But I do think it's a good movie and it's definitely one of the better movies this year in terms of the films that came out aiming for the Oscars but didn't get it. Um, I, watch, I, I watched Shattered Glass, which is an extremely, a damn near criminally underrated uh, journalism procedural from the year 2003 about a journalist who... Uh, his who's a young prodigy journal prodigy journalist whose career, uh, comes apart at the seams when it's discovered that he may or may not be making up and fabricating his stories. And it stars a very young Hayden Christensen, a year removed from Attack of the Clones and like two years prior to Revenge of the Sith. So, this came out at that point when. You know, people were questioning Hayden Christensen's ability to act because they had unfortunately seen him in a movie written by George Lucas. But this movie damn well proves that Hayden Christensen is a good actor. He is brilliant in this. It's one of those procedurals that is very, you know, to the fact about the world that it's in. You know, this is a very, you know, factual journalism based movie and I know that could bore some people but if they this is the kind of movie that you would be into I would 100% check it out it has tremendous performances across the board from not only Hayden Christensen but also Peter Skarsgård and I just think it's a movie that doesn't get talked about nearly enough as it should I think it was brilliant uh and then I watched Megan or m 3 as a as the marketing describes it and I did a review on this I can't recall if I I, yeah I definitely posted it up on my Instagram but I thought this was a fun time you know like I'm always here for a good uh killer doll movie or I'm always here for a good slasher movie I'm always I always enjoy the concept of a toy coming to life in a horror sense you know I'm a huge fan of child's play and so on and I think Megan is definitely this generation's Chucky. Um, but also there's a bit more to it beneath the surface uh, than it comes across on paper because of how much this movie was kind of marketed on, the TikTok dances and whatnot. This at times feels like a Paul Verhoeven social satire, which is a huge compliment as far as I'm concerned. Um, even with the opening and how it kind of talks about how modern day parenting, uh, the dangers of just leaving your child to be raised by screens and, um, devices and the dangers of that. And how does one parent with, how does one balance parenting and letting their child, you know, have these devices, which again, I, you know, I have nieces and I've 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 a niece and two nephews. I know exactly how attached they can be to their devices, their computers, their you know, switches, their iPads or whatever. So yeah, so like there is in modern parenting there is a balance that has to be juggled and this movie 
speaks to that and kind of satirizes it and uh, kind of points out, hey, parents, maybe you should balance, uh, you know, devices with actual parenting from you as well. Don't just leave your child to be raised by an iPad. That That's dangerous for the child um, and whatnot. So, yes, I do, re- I do think that at times it feels like it was holding back a little because it wanted to be for a 12-a audience for the young TikTok generation who aren't old enough to see a movie if it's 15s or if it's 18s. So there's that sense that this movie maybe wants to be crazier than it actually is, a bit more bloody, a bit more violent, but it can't. So it does feel like it's on a bit of a leash that maybe I'd like to see that leash, leash loosened. If there's a sequel, I've heard there might be a an R-rated version going up on the streaming sites whenever it hits streaming. If it's so, then I'll definitely want to check that out because I'd like to see the bits that this movie couldn't show that I think were filmed but couldn't get past the age rating. So maybe I'll enjoy this movie even more once I've seen that. But again, I thought this was a, uh, this was a fun horror movie time. Go on a Friday night with some friends. It kind of knows how scary it can be but also how funny it can be as well it's self-aware of the fact that this whole concept and story and this you know antagonist Megan as a villain is can be kind of funny as well so this is a movie that's smarter than it looks and it's a lot of fun um and then I watched Decision to Leave which is Park Chan-wook of old boy fame his latest, which is a South Korean detective noir movie. And I just think this movie was awesome. This is a really good movie. I watched it online um, on Mubi. Uh, I think it's coming to Irish cinemas on the 13th of February or so. I think it, I think it has a release date sometime in cinemas sometime later this month. Um, but... Yeah, I would definitely check it out, especially in cinemas. This movie, you know, this is a movie you you would that I would be willing to spend cinema prices to see. I think it's fantastic. It's a great noir movie about a detective investigating a woman who potentially may have murdered her husband and developing forbidden feelings. And, you know, it feels like an old school noir film but with that kind of modern South Korean, um, you know, gut punch element to it. Um, and again, I just thought it was great. Definitely check it out. I'm shocked that it got uh, ignored by the Academy. Absolutely shocked. And then for the benefit of the podcast, I watched Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost. Uh, we already did a full entire episode on this. So if you want my uh more want more feelings towards that movie from me uh go watch that episode but i enjoyed this i didn't like it as much as zombie island and i may or may not like it more than alien invaders but uh as i said you can go and watch my the episode with myself dean and brennan if you want more detail as to how i feel towards that movie uh what else did i watch i also watched wild mountain tyne which is a movie that brought back a lot of memories in terms of 
uh, college classes where we gave out about how bad this movie was, or how bad this movie looked, and it was my first time seeing it since I saw it in early two thousand in mid two thousand twenty late two thousand twenty yes and it's still really bad guys but it's funny bad it is hilariously bad if you want a good time with a bad movie this is this is the movie for you it is ridiculous on every single level Emily Blunt's terrible Irish accent, Jamie Dornan's terrible Irish accent. I don't know how that's possible. He's Irish. And God, whoever looked at Christopher Walken and thought, there's a man who could do a good Irish accent. It's complete nonsense. It's awful. It is by no means an accurate depiction of modern day Ireland whatsoever in any way, shape or form. But if you have some drinks on you and you want to just have a fun time watching a very bad, so almost so bad it's good movie, then Wild Mountain Time, you can't go very much wrong with that because it is hilariously awful. Um, then I watched The Way Way Back, which is a coming of age movie from 10 years ago. It was my first time rewatching it since. 2013 it stars um Steve Carell, Sam Rockwell, uh Tony Collette, just a, a great cast across the board including an awesome supporting performance by Alison Janney that will always make me laugh. She's an absolute scream in this movie. But this movie is great. This is one of those movies that you watch and then you don't see for a very long time and then you rewatch and you think, yeah, this is a really good movie. It does nothing at all new or different with the uh, tried and true formula of, you know, one magical summer uh, young teen coming of age movie. It doesn't do anything new or inventive. It just does the formula really, really, really well. Yeah, and it doesn't try to be anything really different than that, which sometimes can be a bad thing. But when it's just when it's a movie doing its job this well, there's no problem with it whatsoever. I highly recommend it. I think it's great. It's one of the best uh, coming of age movies so far this century, as far as I'm concerned. And we've had a lot of them. So that's saying something. Uh, and then I watched Muriel's Wedding, which is an awesome mid-90s Australian rom-com the breakout role for Tony Collette, one of the movies she should have won an Oscar for but wasn't even nominated, which is a growingly big category for Tony Collette. And this is a phenomenal movie about uh, an ugly duckling mistreated by her family, runs off with her best friend, listens to a lot of ABBA music. You know, it's, it is it feels like a movie that shouldn't work because of how of its time mid-90s Australian it is, but it works because it's just this tremendous story of female liberation and it's just, it's, it's a great movie. Like, not enough people know about this movie. We really need to get more people watching this movie. It's fantastic. Its love for ABBA is probably why we got two Mamma Mia movies. This was that time in the mid-90s when 
basically, 1994 was just the year in which Australian cinema said, hey, we're going to make ABBA a thing again. So this and Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which is another great movie from Australia in 1994. You should also go and watch that because it's tremendous. But yes, this movie is fantastic. It has one of my favorite female performances ever from Toni Collette. She's amazing. This movie is funny. It's charming. It's kind of heartbreaking, heartwarming. It's one of those romantic comedies that manages to be, you know, comedy and then like yes it's it's romantic at times but like you know you're not kind of waiting for her to fall in love you're waiting for her to finally fall in love with herself i do it's one of my favorite romantic movies of all time it's one of my favorite uh, female comedies of all time it's great i could go on about this movie for hours um and then I watched Singing in the Rain, which is a stone-cold, bona fide, undisputed classic. One of the greatest musicals of all time. If you haven't seen Singing in the Rain by now, what are you doing with your life, people? What are you doing? You know, it will never get old. It will never lose a single ounce of charm. It will never not be just this amazing achievement. Donald O'Connell... Donald O'Connor's um, Make Him Laugh uh, musical sequence is one of the greatest things ever put to cinema. You know, I saw Babel, you know, especially see, thinking about it now after not only seeing this, but Babylon as well, which I'll get into later on in this episode. You know, this movie paints such an interesting picture of how Hollywood by 1950s was looking back on itself you know, about 30 years, just over, just under 30 years on from that transition from silent cinema to sound, to talk from silent films to talkies, and just how it's interesting to see how Hollywood, how it looked at itself, and how, you know, this is, this plays as a comedy, but also there's layers underneath it that still kind of ring true to this day, like, I think time has been extremely kind to the character of Lena Lamont in terms of, you know, she's kind of the villain in Singing in the Rain when it first comes out. But when you look at it through the modern lens, she is just kind of like you know, cinema's first girl boss in a sense. Um, but yeah, like Singing in the Rain, I could talk about it all day as well. It's beautiful. It's it's damn near perfect. Go and watch it. Five out of five, ten out of ten, five stars, all the stars give it everything which i then followed up by watching bank of dave which is unfortunately uh the first and will not be the last of the really really not that great netflix original movies of 2023 it's based on a very fascinating story of a working class man with of money uh who goes about creating his own bank, the first new bank in the UK, for over a hundred years at that point. It had been like a hundred years since a new bank, they'd allowed a new bank to be formed, because there's a big process with like the upper echelon bigwigs of the banking world in the UK, and so on and so forth. But, um... So yes, that's a very cool story. That's a very cool working class man story. 
But it's not about him, even though his name is literally in the title. It's about his preppy, snobby uh, London lawyer who discovers this wonderful, fanciful world of a way... You know, you know those basically... Oh, this big city lawyer goes to a small town and finds his true self. Think that, but the small town is Burnley. You know, like, is that really small town America? Like, it's not Radiator Springs. So it's it's really stupid. It's it's boring because, again, you're, the main character isn't interesting. He is a boring man with boring problems, who's not written in any way interesting. He's just, oh, a snobby London person going to this working-class Burnley area. And, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a nothing. It is a complete nothing of a movie. Rory Kinnear is quite good as Dave, and I would have liked more Dave in the movie called Bank of Dave. But, you know... This movie thought, yeah, let's go with the lawyer instead. Ridiculous. Probably the worst movie I've seen all month, to be told. Although, yeah, yeah, worst movie I've seen all month. I've seen a worse... I've seen a movie I kind of disliked more, but it's February now, so that'll be on next month's list. But yes, don't... Do yourself a favour. Don't bother with Bank of Dave. Bank elsewhere. Um, and I followed it up with Harlan County, USA, which is a documentary from the 1970s about a working class town in Kentucky uh, that has a miners strike. And it is one of the best documentaries ever made. It is a real dirt under the fingernails. Uh, the camera gets more than you would think and to the point where you're kind of uncomfortable how much gets caught on camera. It's very much, very real, gritty, uh, salt-of-the-earth uh, documentary filmmaking uh, chronicling this year-long mining strike and, you know, contrasting the people on the picket lines with the folks working in the unions and the coal industry and all the Scorsese-esque politics and shenanigans going on at the upper level and then this really down-to-earth working-class struggle at the centre of it. It's one of those movies, you know, that will make you feel like you're watching one of those, you know, schmaltzy, you know, schmaltzy working-class man movies, but it, but it's just so real. It's almost uncomfortably real and I would definitely check it out then I watched Fire of Love which is which if I had seen it uh, before the end of last year probably would have made at least my top 20 it is one of the best documentaries of the decade of the decade so far it's this quirky romantic and really beautiful story about this French couple who fall in love and spend their lifetimes lifetime together um studying and visiting volcanoes and working as volcanologists and it works as both a a retelling of their you know a documentary about their work 
within the field of volcanology and how um, they worked to help progress technology in terms of assessing the dangers of volcanoes and warning people and teaching people about how dangerous the eruptions can be. But also a story of not only their love and romance with each other, but their love and romance with the a whole idea of volcanoes. It's one of those movies that makes you terrified of volcanoes, but also makes you see volcanoes as also these beautiful things in other ways. Um, it's probably it's the most Wes Anderson documentary never made by Wes Anderson. Um, and I do mean that in a good way. Uh, it's on Disney Plus at the moment. I would definitely check it out because it's great. Um, then I watched Tar. This is another movie where if you want to read my review for it, it's up on my Instagram. But it is a heavy hitter in the awards season this year for good reason. Kate Blanchett is incredible. This is such a well-made movie. Uh, I described it in my review as, you know, the German sports car of prestige awards dramas. It's so well put together. It has it has something deep to say on the concept of cancel culture that doesn't feel like, oh God, they're talking about cancel culture and whatnot. It actually feels like it's getting deeper into that issue than just buzzwords and, you know, sentiments that will kind of make you roll your eyes or that will feel dated in a couple of years. This feels like it's actually trying to discuss the concept of art versus the artist in a deeper way than you'll ever see on Twitter or anything like that. Um, the cinematography is beautiful. The production design is spectacular, is really good. It's really sleek. It's so well directed by Todd Field. Um, and it's, and it's a, and it's a great script as well. Like it's a movie that manages to make what is essentially two and a half hours of upper-class posh Europeans talking about classical music and so on and so forth into something that is actually riveting. Like, there's a one-shot sequence filmed in where she's... where Kate Blanchett's character is teaching a class in Juilliard and she has a debate with a student about Bach and that whole idea of can you... Can you still relate uh, to something even though you know the person who made that may have lived a life that you don't agree with or was not what would be kind of frowned upon today? That whole thing and like how do you connect with that? You know, if that's very far outside your own experience and whatnot. And it's just, it's such a good scene. It's so well filmed. It's so well acted. It, it has you on the edge of your seat, even though it's just people walking around a hall saying things. You know, it makes dialogue a special effect. It's that kind of a script. So definitely go and watch her. It may not be for everyone. It is two and a half hours and it is very, and it feels very European. Um, but if, if you think it's your kind of movie, then definitely go and see it. You will get something out of it. Even if it is just the sense that hot damn Kate Blanchett is so 
freaking talented. Uh, then I watched Double Indemnity, which is probably uh, probably Billy Wilder's best film and maybe even just about the best film noir ever made. It's a movie that is so well written and so well acted and so well directed and well crafted and well put together as a story that it manages to make insurance company men interesting, fascinating, layered characters. Like that is an achievement when the entire film revolves around men who sell insurance and it's riveting. It's a movie that is just this fabulous puzzle but like built in reverse so you kind of you get a confession at the start and then it's the story of how it all happened and how it all fell apart and I don't want to spoil anything because it's one of those movies that you you just have to see if you're an annual fan of film noir how have you not seen Double Indemnity it is incredible it's one of the best movies of its era and if it was made today it would still be one of the best films of this era you know, it is a fantastic movie. It is a stone-cold classic, and I would 100% recommend it. Uh, and then I watched Babylon, which is definitely not a masterpiece. It is a movie that is probably a bit too long, a bit too chaotic, a bit too self-indulgent. But as someone who is a big, big, fat fan of old Hollywood and old Hollywood history, this was catnip for me. I really enjoyed this. Maybe maybe it's the cult of newness, maybe it may not still hold that same enjoyment if I watch it again or whatever. Uh but I understand why this may not be for everyone. It's it's so overindulgent in terms of how it goes about showing uh, it's and of of just how much movie that it is. It is so much movie getting thrown at your face all the time. It's not so much a story. It's more just a compilation of sequences of wild behavior and over the top excess crazy scenes. It's very much kind. Of, it's what Wolf of Wall Street was but with a bit less meat on the bones in terms of story. It's one of those stories that kind of goes along and goes along and goes along, and then by the time you're into Act 3, you're like, oh, so this is where the story was kind of going. You know, it it feels like it maybe could... Maybe if maybe it would have been better as, like, a five- or six-part HBO series. Um, my The way I described it on Letterboxd was if Singing in the Rain was an HBO miniseries with all the connotations that that brings, it would be Babylon. You know, Damien Chazelle took such a swing with this and he didn't knock it out of the park per se, but I love how big of a swing he took with this one. Um, then I watched Let the Wrong One In, which is an Irish horror comedy about vampires in Dublin and it's a very stupid movie it's definitely not going to be for everyone how much you enjoy this movie will depend on how much you can tolerate of the kind of inner city Dublin humor it is basically 90 minutes of ah Jesus I'm a vampire fuck's sake that is essentially what how I would describe this movie's sense of humor. It's got Giles from Buffy the Vampire Slayer in it. He's really fun in it. 
although his character doesn't go exactly the way you'd think and he kind of he he doesn't factor into the third act as much as you'd kind of think he would um so yeah so it it's pro- it'll probably be maybe a cult classic i don't see it kind of winning over everyone it's very stupid um i don't think it it's not anything it's not like a Shaun of the dead level like oh this is a genius horror comedy no it's very it's it's very stupid it's very silly i got enjoyment out of it because you know i'm from dublin i'm like yeah no this this these are caricatures but like i understand these caricatures and i get it and i liked it for what it is it has some of the worst special effects i've seen in a movie in a long time although this movie had a very small budget so i can understand why but it it's it's bad to the point but they're bad to the point of like you can't ignore you can't like just not say oh that's bad even though you can say well it's a small budget but yeah um but i i enjoyed it i i enjoyed it. i didn't think it was terrible i thought it was fine um i got some comedy out of it um and that's that's what it's going for it's not trying to be anything big or special it's just trying to be a silly little stupid comedy and it works in that degree uh then i watched wendell and wild which was a really which is a really cool movie on netflix directed by Hen- henry selick if you don't know henry selick he directed nightmare before christmas not tim burton nightmare before christmas was a henry selick movie uh based on the tim burton idea but you know but yeah uh and this is a really fun movie it's not perfect by any means. It has a bit too much going on, but I love the animation. I loved uh, how creative it was and its designs and some of its ideas. Again, I don't think it fully stuck the landing because there was just so many things stuffed in here. But I would definitely take more movies like this over, you know, anything kind of, you know, you know, sh- pushed out of the backside of like illumination entertainment or something like that you know it's it's great to see henry selick still working in this day and age and then we rounded off the month of january with the fablemans which again i did a big review for on my instagram so i won't go into it in too much detail but i really enjoyed this movie and i enjoy it more and more the more i think about it it's one of the best films Spielberg has done in a while. And I said that about West Side Story too. so he's on a roll. Um, this is just a beautiful, heartfelt movie, you know, that is that really touches on the idea of family and the struggle between, you know, pursuing your dreams and also, you know, your love for your family. Um, and I think it's a very open and honest uh in terms of how it touched upon Spielberg's childhood because this is semi autobiographical um again you can read my instagram if you w- if you want more of my thoughts on the movie but i really really enjoyed it and it's and it's worthy of the oscar buzz that it's gotten and the nominations that it has received uh, so that's what I watched in January of 2023. Uh, like I said, we'll be having a new episode up very soon. We're going to be having the nominations for the Macho Awards coming out very soon as well. Um, until then, thank you all very much for listening and goodbye.